This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. So apparently the audio hum issue really was solved. Uh, I figured out what it was last week and just wanted to double check before talking about it. And there was a bunch of really great comments and people helping. So thank you very much to everybody that posted. Um, a lot of people talked about uh, the ground loop hum. I kind of knew it wasn't that just because of all the years of experience of playing live music. And, you know, anytime you have a high gain heavy metal amp, you're going to know if there's a bad ground hum. So uh, I, I kind of knew it wasn't that, but I still double checked any Anyway, especially because it's a USB mic, there's very little chance of that. Somebody said it was 60 hertz hum, which was distinctive for uh, the power um, the power sockets. I actually had tested that because I just removed the all 60 hertz using Audacity and it didn't fix it. So I kind of thought it wasn't that, but I still checked, so I really appreciated it. Uh, somebody else suggested that maybe I left my butt plug on vibrate while recording the podcast, and uh, no, that wasn't it either. <laughs> Um, I figured out what it was uh, when I was rearranging things, and I picked up my five and a half inch hard drive off the desk, and it stopped humming. That's all it was. It's so dumb, and I feel like a total moron, because I was spending so much time concentrating on getting the room set up and getting everything right, and there was the flickering lights, where I still do have to get that last light fixed. That's still kind of a pain in the ass, but... Um, that's all it was. And I, as soon as I picked it up and everything stopped, I went, oh, I'm an idiot. So that's that's all it was, just a vibrating hard drive on the same surface as a microphone. And I use uh, the Blue Yeti. And as you can see on the bottom here, uh, it that rubber pad basically just connects it right to the, the desk. So that vibration goes right through it. So I, uh, I mounted the external drive on the inside. I got uh, a dual, um, I ca they call this the Seagate Portable Fast because it's two, two terabyte drives in RAID. So this is my portable drive, which I will not leave plugged in when I'm recording the podcast. And uh, the internal drive is in the computer. So the hum is gone. Um, I am in an industrial building, and right now I hear something coming from that direction. So there's probably going to be noises here and there from the buildings and companies around me. Um, maybe until I get that light fixed, there might be an occasional something. But the main annoying hum is gone, and I feel like a total moron. So... <laughs> Thanks to everybody for posting, and let me get along, get on with the news, and uh, stop talking about my stupidity. <laughs> First up is something I saw just after shooting the podcast last week. Somebody hacked a real Super Mario Land cart and injected their own custom code into it, which was kind of neat, because this stuff has always been done with ROMs, and there's even little devices you could sit between the cart, kind of like action replays or game genies, but there's other things that do on-the-fly patching as well. But this person actually flashed the Super Mario Land cart itself, 
uh, and it injected a code that allows you to do a whole bunch of different things. And while it's not really something that you'd want your average player would want, um, anybody that loves ROM hacking or any kind of software hacks would probably be into it. So uh, if you're interested, definitely give it a watch. And if not, hey, at least you got a cool little snippet of it here. Next, Simius, the creator of the Atari 5200 and Atari 800 computer mods, just showed a prototype of a DVI outputting version of his Sophia board. So there's no price or release date or any real further information other than showing of the prototype, but it does look like he's making progress and that it's going to be an actual product. So I thought that was pretty cool, especially because you might be able to now hook up that Atari 800 computer to like an actual VGA monitor through the DVI port or something. So if there's any more news on it, I'll post. Um, and uh, I still haven't gotten along to do or gotten around to do the 5200 RGB mod. I might end up doing two. I might end up doing that and the Atari 800 computer because I'm kind of curious about those. But I'll keep everybody updated as soon as there's more news. Next, Smoke Monster has updated his ROM packs for the NES, SNES, and then the Analog NT Mini full jailbreak pack, as well as updated the SD to SNES backgrounds with a bunch more cool ones. So uh, if just try to find it using the regular methods, just Google Smoke Monster ROM pack and sign up for the free uh, for the free forum and just go from there. I'm still really unsure about posting links for that, and it's so easy to find. I figured it's better for everybody to just play it safe. But as always, great updates, and thanks to him and uh, the bunch of other collaborators that have been helping for the past few months for keeping these things up uh, and for always adding more cool stuff to them, especially that analog NT-mini jailbreak, because that's just like the key right there. You just uh, extract that to an SD card, put it in the analog NT-mini, and there you go. You're all set with everything you need. So thanks again, and anybody that needs those three packs, definitely look for the updates. Next, Firebrand X has just updated his Framemeister profiles with what he's calling producer packs. Basically, these are designed for people that make their own footage for use in their videos that don't want any of the overscan or garbage stuff on the sides. Um, this is most notable in NES games, but you could also see the borders in Genesis and sometimes some unwanted artifacts and other stuff. So he designed these based off his original profiles that basically just pull the screen in a little bit more so you don't have any of that extra garbage, which means anybody who's making their own videos don't even have to worry about that in post-processing anymore. So I thought that was a really cool idea and really helpful for anybody that makes their own videos. So thanks again to him, and the link is in the description on where to get them. Next, someone posted the design files for a 3D printed Pluto HDMI mount for the GameCube. So basically, if you're using the Pluto board and not a pre-made GameCube video kit, um, you could actually, instead of trying to secure it yourself, just use this 3D printed plastic thing to kind of secure it into place. And uh, I thought it was very cool, and I love how this stuff's all available on 3D printed websites nowadays. So if you're looking to make your own internal version, this will certainly make it a lot easier and probably look a little better too. So thanks to Ross for sending in that tip. The Game Gear console Facebook page just posted a prototype of a NES controller port adapter that sits inside the battery slot. So obviously you would still have to wire it internally, but it just uses the battery slot as a nifty little place to, to hold it in. And I think it's great. Um, I do love the Game Gear. I mean, it had a bunch of great games on it, but that screen just didn't really hold hold up to all, everything else. I mean, it didn't, it didn't stand the test of time compared to lots of other things, at least in my opinion. So having ways to play it on a TV with a controller is awesome. 
Um, and of course, you know, you could always play it as well through the analog NT mini, or you could get the McWill mod with the LCD screen, which actually makes it playing on the Game Gear, in my opinion, way better, because you could actually see the games. But uh, if you're a fan of the Game Gear and you like um, all the weird inventions people are coming up with it, uh, coming up with for it, um, definitely follow these guys on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Game Gear Console. I follow them, and every once in a while they pop up with some really neat stuff. Um, not all of it's worth talking about. No, no offense. It's just uh, you know because most of us want a little bit of the coolest stuff. Uh, but if you're a fan of the Game Gear, you'd probably want to see all of the things that they come up with. So definitely follow them, and the link's in the description to the uh, prototype. And there's no price or release date on this, but they think they might be able to get it out by the end of the summer um, for anybody that actually wants to buy one for themselves. There's a new firmware available for the open source scan converter. This firmware adds optimized modes as well as some compatibility options um, and a few uh, other things that I haven't really had time to test. The links in the description and the uh, you know the different additions are right there. But basically, uh, um, I haven't noticed any of the optimized modes or compatibility fix any of the previous compatibility issues I had with it. And that's really the only complaint I have about the OSSC. I finally found a very cheap 32-inch Samsung TV that works with all modes, including 240p pass-through, which I thought was awesome, because while it's just a, a crappy flat screen with nothing, you know, nothing special at all about it, it does have under two frames of lag that I tested myself personally, and it is uh, compatible with all the modes. So that's great. At least I have a flat screen that I could test with it. But I really need a capture card that works with all modes as well. So if anybody could please recommend, um, you know, I guess internal PC based is probably the easiest for me. But I just want an HDMI capture card that'll or or DVI whatever that'll be compatible with every mode. Because uh, in my setup right now, what I really want to do is have the OSSC output go into an HDMI splitter, one go into my capture card, and the other go into my TV. Um, I was using the PEX HD cap, the internal version of the StarTech one, and for whatever reason, uh, plugged in directly, it works in 2x and sort of in 4x mode, but when I'm plugged in through the HDMI splitter, it only works in 2x mode. So uh, it's always something, you know, but uh, if anybody knows of one, please post down below. Uh, and anybody that has an OSSC, definitely upgrade. Next, Renee from DB Electronics posted an article ranting about surface finish on PCBs and why gold plating really matters for repro carts. Um, I, I've been talking to him about this for a while. He's ranted on the retro roundtable about it. And while I grasped the concept, I didn't really like get it until he posted a couple of pictures on uh, on his blog post so really it's uh if anybody makes their own repros or if you've been buying repros definitely take a look at this because it does matter um and especially for the longevity of the carts so as long as they're gold plated and beveled they're good but so many places uh sell them without both of those just basic silver and uh, a full square bottom on the actual cartridge itself which is really bad for anything that you're inserting it into. So uh, any fellow nerds want to read up about repros and the right way to do them, definitely check out his blog post. The team behind the CRT wiki on Reddit has now expanded to RGB moddable TVs. So while that's something that I always want to very hard drive home that you shouldn't be messing with this stuff unless you know what you're doing, because you could possibly die by touching the wrong thing, 
it's very cool that we have this information out there. I'll actually be doing a video, hopefully by the end of the month, with my friend Jose, showing how to do an RGB mod on a smaller one, because I was able to find a small tube TV that has every input, RF, component, composite, and S-video. So being able to plug RGB into this as well, I think it would be very cool, and I think it would be helpful, too, for comparison videos and things like that. So um, anybody interested in this stuff, definitely check it out. Please don't mess with it unless you know what you're doing. And I hope a lot of people contribute. That way, um, you know, this really just grows and this information is archived forever. The 8-Bit Guy just uploaded a video about relabeling and restoring cartridge games. And it kind of sparked a debate about, um, you know, should you mess with existing cartridges? If the label is messed up, should you, you know, take it off, reprint another one and put that on? Is it still original? Um, you know, what happens if your cartridge looks bad, you know, should you repaint it, things like that. And, you know, I, I kind of don't know where I stand on this one because I do have a couple of cards with labels that are messed up and I just would never touch them. But a lot of the analogies were made to people that restore old cars. And while I do respect that and I, I find those things kind of to be works of art, uh, you know, the, the way people really go out of their ways to restore them to the original... Me, personally, if I were going to go rebuild an old Camaro, I would gut it and put all new stuff in it. You know, new motor, you know, new interior. I wouldn't I wouldn't really be obsessed upon putting the all-original panels and stuff inside it. Which is strange, because I'm the guy that keeps saying, you know, don't cut your consoles, leave the plastic the same. But I don't mind modding the insides. So I really don't know where I stand on the cartridge games. Um, I do know the one thing that I, I will say for certain is that if you have a game and you reprint the label and you go to sell it, you should absolutely advertise that it's a reprinted label on it. Um, that's for damn sure. Uh, but other than that, I don't really know. I was kind of interested in your guys' opinion on it. You know, Do you guys put new labels on your uh, broken or, or damaged old cartridges? Um, you know, how does that affect the value for some of the rare stuff? I imagine the value would go down, right? But it just it was something that kind of intrigued me, and I was kind of wondering everybody's opinion on it. So uh, post down below and, and keep it nice. Don't get angry. There's a bit of Switch news. First, their online service will uh, still trickle out for free over the course of 2017, but starting in 2018, it'll be $20 a year, which is actually seems like kind of a fair price to me. Um, and uh, whatever features come out, it's going to be very slow at first. I think they said they were going to offer some classic games, but now it's only going to be a couple of NES games to start. And then I guess there was a big debate about um, when they allowed games, uh, classic games to be played for free. It was originally only going to be for a short period of time. But now you're going to get access to those for the whole time that you pay for the service, which is much more like what I assumed a good way to do that would be. Um, but I guess all these things will be, you know, I, we won't be able to test them until they're released. So I guess I'm not going to speculate anymore on any of that. They also showed a picture of what the Splatoon headphone would look like. And you have to have a headphone into your smartphone connecting to the Switch. It looks incredibly convoluted, so maybe I'm missing something on that one. But I would have thought with a brand new console, you should be able to just plug a headset into the console. So I guess not. But, um, 
yeah, so uh, as soon as that service starts to come alive, I'll test it and report back on it. But this is still more of a, a retro podcast for all the classic consoles, so I don't want to spend too much time on any of the new stuff, only when it's really relevant to retro things or just short little updates like this. So I'll let everybody know when the service opens and how good the classic games are on the Switch itself. And speaking of the Switch, my buddy Phil sent me a link to a page that shows exactly how Switch games are made. And it's pretty cool because they break it down um, and they really look at everything under a magnifying glass and explain what everything is and how each piece is made. So interesting enough to share at least. And uh, so I guess if, uh, if you're into that stuff, check out the link and see how a Switch game is made. Next, there's a documentary called The Lost Arcade available for rent centered around an arcade in Chinatown, New York. I'd actually like to visit it and kind of give my own impressions, but I think it's more um, focused on the older arcade games, where because of the era I grew up, I love the early 90s arcade games. But it's pretty neat. Uh, It seems pretty neat. I watched the trailer, um, and I haven't watched the full documentary yet, but I figure anybody that's interested in the old arcade stuff might uh, might be interested in it. So I wanted to at least mention it on the podcast. Next, the Mortal Kombat 2 Plus project has just added a cool little animation, so when you go to do a fatality, Shokan actually stands up to watch. And I guess this was something that was originally planned for Mortal Kombat 2, but for whatever reason they didn't put it in, so they found the missing frames and actually programmed it back into Mortal Kombat 2 Plus. So I thought that was awesome, and I hope to someday get a Mortal Kombat machine in here so that I could actually add MK2 as well as MK2+, Plus, so I could really experience this. Um, I think you could still, you don't need a full arcade to do that. You could actually run it through MAME, uh, and if you're a fan, definitely donate, because that project just looks awesome. T- uh, tons of attention to detail, and it really just seems like it enhances an already great game. Next, Ben Venn is offering pre-modded Game Boy Color shells to make it easier to install his kit that allows the AGS 101 screen into a Game Boy Color. Ben's actually got a ton of very, very cool Game Boy stuff coming out, um, and I'm trying to coordinate some kind of uh, uh, interview with him. I guess it's hard because of his internet connection, but uh, if you're a fan, definitely check out his Facebook page. It's um, Facebook forward slash Ben Venn Electronics and two ends on the end of both. Links in the description too, of course, but he's got a ton of great stuff on there and I hope to eventually be able to talk to him on camera and really pick his brain on all the cool things he's been inventing. So uh, uh, if you've been working or if you've been wanting to do some of his installs, maybe check this out and purchase one of these to make it easier. LibRetro just tweeted that they're going to be adding the Dolphin Core to their multi-emulator platform. Which is pretty interesting because, as far as I know, the Dolphin emulator has always required pretty powerful uh, hardware. Um, I guess you could use it with more modern graphics cards, but not base model ones. I mean, the last time I really played with it was probably three years ago, so maybe, maybe it got more efficient now. But I'm really interested to see what it's ported to and, and how it could be used in those different scenarios. I mean, could we get a 240p Dolphin emulator on a Raspberry Pi or I don't know, the possibilities are endless, but um, as soon as it's released, I'll probably end up giving it a try just for the hell of it. And uh, if I can do anything special, I'll report back, but I'm actually expecting other people who are experts at using LibRetro 
to be uh, on top of this and really have more testing done than I could probably ever do in a short period of time. So I'll keep everybody updated. And uh, anytime stuff like this is added, it just increases the possibilities of what you could do with it. Artemio retweeted something pretty cool the other day. It's an RS-232 wireless modem. So basically, it's Wi-Fi chip on an RS-232 adapter that you could plug into vintage computers, and the computer itself thinks you're dialing into a certain modem, when in actuality you're just, those commands are being interpreted and sent to the Wi-Fi module to connect to an SSID with the password. And I just think that's absolutely awesome. Uh, it just makes me want to go pick up a bunch of really old computers, plug this thing in, and see what we could do with it. So such a really cool and ingenious invention, and I hope to always see more stuff like this pop up. Next, My Life in Gaming just uploaded a video about the Super 8 for the Super Nintendo, which is kind of like a ROM cart, but you could also use it to dump your own carts, back up your save game files, or even apply saves to it or another existing original cartridge. And it's a pretty neat device. Uh, myself, personally, I would still use the SD to SNES just because of all the tremendous advantages. But Mark is insistent upon always using the original cartridges for everything, even for hacks and translations. So that's probably the best way to do it. He likes to dump his own and everything else. And to be honest, I don't really think there's a right or wrong way to do it. It's all in preference. I mean, we all have our little weird isms. I have to own all the games that I play, even though I mostly just play them off the ROM card anyway. Eh, we're all a bunch of, we all have our own retro gaming weirdness, so it's all good, but it's a very cool video, and I highly recommend watching it if you're a fan of any kind of fan translations or hacks for the Super Nintendo, because maybe that's the route you'd want to go. And lastly, Crix just announced that he's changing the lineup of Game Boy cartridges to the X series, like some of his others. So by mid to end summer, he'll have the X7 out, which includes a real-time clock that's isolated to each game, which means that if you have multiple games requiring a real-time clock, each will have its own that it syncs to. It'll also have instant loading, um, an in-game menu, as well as save states. Um, it also uh, has an X5, a cheaper version out, which is pretty much the same thing, minus the save states, in-game menu, and real-time clock. And then finally, the X5 is the, pretty much the same as everything, but uh, or is the same as the one now, just the lower end. And to be honest, I'm really pleased with the one I have now. I don't have any complaints at all, so um, it played all the games that I tried. I don't play any real-time clock games, so that really doesn't affect me. So uh, if you haven't purchased one yet and you end up with the X5, it's still great. Um, but I think I'll probably end up getting the X7 just to be able to test all of its extra features and and just put it through its paces. So I'm glad that Crix is keeping at it and just continuing to have new products come out and hopefully we'll see new EverDrives for new systems sometime this or next year. Okay, now onto the Q&As. Um, I gotta start out by asking you guys a few things though. First is the SNES white line issue. Um, I need some of these. So let me just tell you the quick story why and then uh, offer offer something to you guys. So basically, somebody a few weeks ago contacted me and said their SNES had a very bad white line down the middle. And I asked to send it to me because I, I hadn't found one with a white line in, a, I mean, at least a year and a half at this point. So I really wanted to test some of the newer fixes we've been talking about. The console got to me, and the white line was barely visible. Visible. I had to crank the brightness all the way up on my on all of my monitors just to see it at all. 
So I tried some of the fixes, and um, one, replacing the 7805, uh, improved it, but kind of made it look different. And then doing a full RGB bypass, at least on my monitors, it went completely away. Uh, I haven't heard back from the person yet, so I'm not sure how it looks on his consoles, or on his setup. But one thing to note is that he was going through a Framemeister, and I believe he was using the Firebrand X profiles with the brightness set to 25. Um, so, and he sent pictures, so you could definitely see it through that. Um, so what I'm asking for you guys is if anybody has a white line SNES and they're willing to ship it to me, um, I would love to do some testing on it. All I would ask is that if you're if you only have a Framemeister to test, lower the brightness down to maybe 21 and see if you could still see it, um, because I need uh, white line SNESs that have the issue very bad. I you know I. If it's just kind of faint, then I won't really be able to do anything with it. But what I'd like to offer is um, I'll do all the work. Uh, all you guys have to pay for is shipping and the board. So, uh, And I'll even buy the other components because uh, those are just ch very cheap, less than a dollar each. But what I would really like to do is test a few of the individual white line fixes and then test the full RGB bypass. Because there's a few theories on why, but um, I have seen the white line completely go away after doing a bypass. And it's been debated online, people disagreed, but uh, for, and I don't really know why, but I can tell you right now I've seen it with my own two eyes, and uh, I have other people that will back me up as well. So it's not, you know, this is not me making shit up. Uh, so I really want to get more information as to why, and I just can't afford to buy a, a ton of SNESs and hope they have it. So if you have a white line SNES and the white line is really bad, um, email me and we'll coordinate how this is going to work. But basically send me the console, I'll do the mod, make sure it works, ship it back to you, and then bill you for whatever the shipping back cost plus the cost of the board itself to install in it. Um, I use Voltar's boards, uh, and not because I'm picking favorites, just because I have a direct line of communication with them, and I know that they're really, really high quality. So if I run into any issues, I could just pick up the phone and call them and, you know, and just get it right away. So uh, if anybody's interested, please contact me. Hopefully we can get to the bottom of this stuff, and I could put more information not just as to the fixes, but to why the fixes are working. And there's a whole team of us working on this. I'm just the only one with a microphone in the podcast at the moment, which is why I'm the one asking. But uh, yeah, if you wouldn't mind sh sharing and helping, and at the end, you'll actually, within a few days, get your console back completely modded and looking awesome. So contact me if you're interested. One last, much quicker question for you guys. Um, now that I have an office and the space to do all this stuff, one thing I really want to go back to and redo is my entire RGB monitors page, um, which is very long overdue. But one of the things that I want to add is comparison picks versus consumer-grade TVs and an RGB monitor. I talked earlier in the podcast about having a little Toshiba that I wanted to mod, but what I would really, really like to do is find a 20-inch you know, 19 or 20 inch Sony TV um, that had all of the inputs. So RF, composite, S-video, and component. Uh, and I don't know, I only know of one model number that has it, and it's one of the newer kind of flat CRT versions. So if anybody knows a model number, even if they could just email me or post down below in the comments what the actual model is, or especially if you actually have a 20-inch that you'd be willing to sell me if you live around the New York area. 
um, or at least temporarily donate and I'd give it back to you. What I'd really love to do is RGB mod that TV and then set up and do a really, you know, in-detailed photo shoot of that versus a PVM versus a BVM. And since they're all 20 inches, all the pixels will be the same size, you know, the scan lines and everything else. So that way it'll really be an apples-to-apples -apples comparison so I could truly demonstrate the differences between a really good consumer-grade TV, a PVM, which is more like, you know, uh, an industrial, hardcore, but high-quality monitor, and a BVM, just a very precision instrument. So uh, if anybody has model number or would be willing to actually bring one down either to sell me or just to, so we could mod and then eventually give back to you, please contact me. Um, I would really love to get to all of those things as soon as possible. Okay, now on to the real Q&As. Um, a bunch of people had posted and emailed me to let me know that hacked 3DSs were getting banned from Nintendo servers. So I, um, you know, I still plan on getting mine. I bought one from somebody, and uh, I also have uh, my friend uh, Justin, the Goodwill Hunter, sending me his new 3DS XL, so I'll be able to hack one myself. But I wanted to definitely reiterate to everybody that if you do this, don't go online with them, and just, I would suggest... I mean, myself personally, I'm going to own two 3DSs. Um, one original, I have my Zelda model that I'm just going to keep totally stock. And then this hacked one, which I'm just really going to use for testing. So if you do end up hacking yours, um, I would suggest keeping it off of Nintendo servers altogether. Next, Juan Salazar asked, Did you end up getting that Otaku SCART switch? Seems useful for dual output. Um, I did, but first, it's not useful for dual output. There's no amp or real circuitry in this, so if you were to use both outputs at the same time, it would be like using a Y cable, so you would be drawing double the signal from the actual origin source. So while that's not going to kill anything right away, it will absolutely, uh, you'll notice signal degradation, and it might lower the life of your console because you're putting double the draw on the output of it. So I wouldn't suggest doing that at all. Um, and I'll get around to doing a review of this as soon as I can. I have both this one as well as the one that uh, has the RCA ports. Um, but it's my guess that at best um, this thing would be kind of useful just for benchtop stuff or if you have a very short lead between them. But also don't forget that because it's passive without an amp, um, you're now, this is just extending the length of your video cable, uh, which, you know, doesn't always have the best results. So uh, I'll do a review on it as quickly as I can. I'm still very backed up at least a couple more weeks, but um, I'm still on track doing as many videos as I can. So I'll get to this as soon as possible, but either way, don't count on this one for dual outputs at all. Um, you'd either need some kind of matrix switch or just go get a better switch. Next, Adam Fowler asked if the component video input of the Framemeister is less quality or lower quality than the RGB input. And that's something that I'd actually heard discussed before on other forums, and I think a misconception is that 480p in all inputs has some issues on the Framemeister. Firebrand X sent me this picture a while back, which kind of demonstrates the issue, but I think that since uh, a lot of people would use 480p through component and not through the RGB input, that's kind of where this really came to head, is people would see that 480p blurring and just assume the component input's much worse. Um, 
There is supposedly a small difference, though, and I'm not really sure why. I never really got a chance to test myself. I don't own a Framemeister. Um, you know, I think it's a good piece of equipment, but I'm not the biggest fan of it uh, compared to, like, the open-source scan converter. So maybe I'll borrow one and be able to do some good captures. But uh, one of Adam's other questions was, if you were to take your component video sources and put them through a Garo, which is the component to RGB SCART converter that the Behar, Behar brothers make, would you notice an increase in quality by running everything through the RGB input? Now, I actually have done that for testing just because I like everything all through one uh, and not really have to worry. So I actually did run a test where I took all of my component video devices into the G-Comp switch. I ran that through the Garo into a G-SCART switch into the Framemeister so that you know everything was all in one. Um, and while that worked great, um, I didn't really uh, do much uh, comparison testing on it. And it's really something I should get back into. So um, maybe I'll get around to uh, doing comparison shots as soon as I could borrow a Framemeister and see if anybody else out there actually has done that. I mean, the uh, the ideal thing to do would be uh, really to test anything that outputs both. Um, but, you know, if uh, I can borrow a Framemeister and have some time to do it, I'll definitely get around to it. But I, it's just my opinion that based on what I've heard, it's not a huge difference. Um, you know, it's not like a, a one-chip to two-chip SNES difference. It's something you'd really have to look for. And, of course, all this stuff really depends on your TV, too. If you're using a high-end calibrated TV, everything's going to be way more noticeable than just your average TV. So uh, to answer your direct question, um, I think there might be a small difference. Uh, and if you already own all these components, it might be worth just running everything through the RGB input anyway. But I'm not so sure that I'd go out and buy new stuff just to be able to make that conversion. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. And if maybe I got something wrong, every, uh, feel free to post down below. Okay, well, that's it for this week. I actually had an interview scheduled, but I guess that kind of fell through, so maybe that'll happen later this week for next week's episode. But as always, any comments or criticism, please post down below. I really like hearing from you guys, and uh, I'll see you next time.